Well, welcome to the series of podcasts with Oscar Mareo from Nairobi, Kenya. My name is Matthew Eckert. This podcast, again, is being recorded in the summer of 2022, and it's all around Oscar's desire to live these last years of his life in a beautiful way in his 5%. And we're talking through eight aspects. I want to read them again. And then we're going to talk about the second one today. But here are the eight things that Oscar is leaning into as a pastor in his early 60s. He wants to secure the mission of the church. Number two, secure the leadership of the church. Number three, secure systems and structures to safeguard the organization. Four, secure the DNA and culture of the church. Five, secure the Davids and the Esters. Six, secure the partnerships. Seven, secure the history and lessons of their work and eight, secure the resources. Well, in this podcast, we're looking at number two, to secure the leadership of the church. And Oscar, I know, has been very focused on leadership. You can't plant over 250 churches without focusing on this. And so, Oscar, as you said this to me, what were you thinking about? What's this overall picture of securing the leadership of the church? Well, thank you, Matt, for the question. And uh, hello, everyone, again. And uh these are the four things that securing the leadership is about. Okay? Okay, so okay. The first is that we have to have a clear leadership pipeline okay. on where people begin, how they progress through the system, and where they eventually end up. Okay. Now, what that means for us is we're looking for leaders at the tail end of their teen years. Okay? And you can already see this among the young leaders. You can see a young man or a young lady who always hang around, always asking the awkward questions, volunteers for everything, really wants to engage and etc. Now, we, I think increasingly because of our education system, see young men and women not formed, um, you know, by the age of 20. And so we're not really seriously thinking about engaging them until they're a little older. And, and rightfully slow because they do say that the human brain is not fully developed until about the age of 25, okay? But many young people make a decision as to where they're going in life, mm. in their teens. There was a study done among missionaries around the world asking, when did you first ever make a decision to become a missionary and go to another country and serve, you know, the church and etc.? And surprisingly, many, more than 50%, say they made that decision before the age of 10. Oh. That far back. Now, if you're not fishing in that pool, do we wonder why on the other end mm. of, you know, the age set, we're struggling to find people to go into ministry? Everybody's spoken for. They made their decision a long time ago mm. before you came along and said, by the way, you know, mm. you could be a pastor, you could be a minister, you could be a missionary. Well, mm. I made that decision 10 years ago and you weren't there, mm. okay? And the vision needs to start in the Sunday school. Mm. It needs to be you know, grown and watered in the teen years and it needs to be noticed and even commissioned in the young adulthood mm. years. And so we begin looking in the teen years, mm. but it's when they're young adults, particularly in college, university age, and just when they graduate from college, because that's about the last time we get that opportunity that we really, really, really tap people on the shoulders. And one of the things we do is we sit down together as a team and we ask a question, who do we see that we sense God is, is tapping on the shoulder, calling into ministry, and can we have an essential mm -hmm. conversation with them? 
And uh, I'll give you one example, Matt, which is just amazing even thinking back about it. There's one year where we sat down and we had, I think it was 85 people on the list. Many of them in the college age group and in the teen ministry that we felt God was calling into ministry. And so we said, let's pray about this for three months and pray with these names and ask God to clarify this. And then let's go and tap them on the shoulder. And so we did after three months and just said, you know, um, as we're praying and asking God, you know, who is it that God might be calling into ministry? Your name is one of the people that we felt maybe God is doing this. And then we'd say to them, because you don't want to manipulate them, would say to them, but you know, the Bible says that my sheep know my voice and they follow after me. So if what I have just said to you is a voice of God, you will know it. You It will resonate with something inside you. And you probably already know that God is already calling in, etc. Mm. And I want to encourage you to follow it. And if it's not, and it's just me, you know, who thinks you're gifted in this way, but it's not where God is leading you, please don't be un under pressure to say yes. Mm. Go Think about this. Can we meet together in a month's time? And then let's just have an essential conversation. Mm. Of those 85, I think about 65 ended up in ministry. Wow. Wow. Because God also does say that, you know, I don't do anything without first revealing it to my prophets. And so maybe he's already showing you who he's calling, but you don't notice because you're not looking out for and you're not thinking about it. Mm. And so you start there and there's got to be a leadership pipeline. When I come into ministry... What then? Mm. Okay. And so we have developed an eight-step leadership pipeline. And the reason we did this is because we felt, you know, when you go to elementary school, you know that after the first year of elementary school, you go to the second, then the third, then the fourth, <laughs> then the fifth. Then you finish elementary school and you go to middle school. From middle school, you go to high school. And from high school, you go to college. And there's a pathway in our educational system. And I know I graduate and I can look for a job and I can get paid this and I can do a doctorate. There's a clear pathway. And what keeps people in the pipeline mm. is that there's a pathway. Mm. And I know where I am in the pathway. I'm still in elementary school. Nobody starts complaining in elementary school. How come nobody's giving me a job like my dad's job and etc.? No, you're not there and you know it. And you need to finish the pathway and then you get there. Mm. So too when you have a clear pathway in the church. Because sometimes the church is like a maze. You know, you enter through this door and then you don't know where am I? Where am I mm. going? Where does this lead? How do I get to the center? You have no idea. And you're lost in the system until one day you sort of, you know, cut your way through the hedges and find freedom and escape. <laughs> okay. So so we have a clear pathway mm. and we put people in the pathway and it helps them get to where they're going. So that's the first one. Mm. We have to define a clear pathway and then publicize that pathway and invite people to walk through the door that mm. leads you to the first pathway. We probably, in all our churches, we try and do this, okay? And different churches are different sides, so they have different capacities. But, you know, um, at the Nairobi Chapel, where for many years I was, we would have up to 30 or 40 young people walking in through that door. And by the time they finish the pathway, many of them would now be populating our churches and going out to plant churches and such. And it was a three-year pathway for us, though in truth, it was more like a seven or eight-year pathway. But after three years, you joined the staff. The first three years, you're in training, you're learning, you're being exposed, you're going out on missions. After three years, we now formalize that and give you a position and a title. And now you became, you know, a ministry director, and then you became an assistant pastor, and then you became a pastor and a lead pastor, and etc. 
Okay, uh, let me go back to the kids piece. This is interesting. Um, so the research, I'm not going to deny it. Up at before age 10, someone decided to become a missionary. I want to assume that before age 10, many kids are deciding what they're going to be, whether they can articulate or not. Something is spoken to them. Yeah. Maybe the parents are just always saying school, school, doctor, yeah. whatever else. Yeah. So, um, so interestingly, let, let's assume that a lot of kids know by age 10 whether they know it or not. They've been funneled that way. So how do you practically, what would you say to a children's pastor or children's leaders? What should they do during Sunday school time? Like how does a church start prompting those? What do you, what do you, does your church do to start even provide the opportunity or even just the thought, I could mm. actually do this? Mm. Yeah, what, what's... I would say probably the best thing to do is to keep bringing people who are in ministry to talk to the kids. Mm. So when you have a missionary in town, get them to go and share with the kids and inspire them. But the power to shape where the kids are going to end up is probably stronger with the parents Mm. than with the Sunday school teachers. Mm. Having missionaries around your dinner table bringing the pastor in to share his stories around the dinner table. That's probably, Mm. you know, a lot more powerful than the Sunday school class itself. But even the Sunday school class plays a big role. So let me be controversial. Uh, I think a lot of parents, sure, I'll make a general statement. (laughs) A lot of parents, uh, because their faith and their discipleship is not strong, really don't know how to or really don't want their kids in ministry. I'd rather have them become a lawyer or a successful this. Maybe they can put some money over there. But how do you even talk to parents about guiding your kids? Maybe God is going to prompt them Mm -hmm. and you need to help stoke those fires versus getting in the way of Mm -hmm. my child will not do ministry because that's poorly paid or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how, Evie, if you got to speak to your parents that way saying... Guide your kids' way. This may be a prompting of God on their lives. Mm. It's it's a good question because there are many parents who are not people of faith, and so they they don't even know how to engage Mm. with that, okay? And the church has to help them get there, which is why the Sunday school becomes important because the kids are presumably in Sunday school because they want to learn about these things, and the Sunday school teacher can actually invite those sorts of people Mm. in, okay? Um, Parents of faith will also take their child on a short-term mission. It doesn't have to be outside of the country, but it can be to significant places, you know, where you're working with people in need and helping and etc. But, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge, Matt. Um, I don't know how to answer that question okay. except to say that, you know, um, well, part of the problem is that we have been deceived into believing that the definition of success revolves only around money and Mm. material possession. Mm. Big problem in today's world. I often define success as there are nine indices on Mm. real success. Okay, I I won't try and name all nine, but let me just name a couple, okay? Um, The Bible says um, that that, um, better is silver, sorry, what what does it say? It says uh, a good name is better than silver and gold Mm. and much more to be desired. Your name and your integrity is of greater value than any money you can ever give your kid. And for a kid to, in their time and season, 
to look back and say my father was this type of man, my mother was this type of woman, is a rich heritage. Now, the world will never tell you that. And many people don't even know the value of that, what to do with that. But as I think of my children, I think to myself, you know, um, I want to give you your inheritance. And part of that inheritance is I will not threaten the integrity of my name. I want when you talk about your father, when you talk about your mother, people will say, I knew your father and he was an upstanding man. He was a man of integrity. I trusted him. He was a good man. That is much more important than any money I can give mm -hmm. my kids. Now, that's just one. Another one would be my faith. The richest inheritance I can pass on to my kids is my knowledge of God and my, my, my devotion and love for Christ. Mm -hmm. And so investing myself into my children embracing faith is 10 times more than investing into an education that will give them lots of money. Because mm -hmm. money and the love of money can ruin you. And you have to recognize that. Knowing Christ will build you and enrich your life a hundred times over. A third inheritance that I think is a beautiful you know, indicator of wealth is community and real friends mm. that you can walk through life. And uh, they're there for you and you're there for them. And you can look back over the years and say, you know, Janet was always my dear friend. And my richest gift in life is this friendship that I have with this you know, person who we've known each other for 20 years and we totally trust each other and etc. Community is a very important part of that. Mm. And so when you define wealth as just money, mm. you might be rich, but you are not wealthy. Mm. You're just rich. You have tons of money. But then look at the people who have tons of money and they don't have much of a life. They don't have wealth. They have tons of money. Mm. Many times they're really messed up. Their lives don't hold together. They're struggling with their addictions. You know, they don't have real friends, etc. That is a poor life to live. Mm. And so it comes back to that. I, I still would say, you know, it's more than money. Mm. Yeah. So far back to this whole idea of securing the leadership of the church, right? Just okay. how do you move this thing forward? And for sure, the kids, and that was great. Thanks for that. Just how do we, boys, those of you who are leaders in a church, how do you start bringing conversations to kids and youth about this could actually be part of your life. Even bring up the idea, you could actually be a pastor. You could actually travel, you could do it and, and just start planting seeds in kids' lives and see what the spirit may do with that. Yeah. And just be a bit more intentional on that yeah. and open up their world. So that's a, thank you for that, so yeah. 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 Have this confidence in your heart that God is in the business of calling men and women into ministry. Mm. Your job is to identify them. Mm. You don't call them. Mm. You just figure out who it is that God is doing this yeah. with. And uh, so it makes our work much, much easier because yeah. God is in the business and mm. you never know what triggered off, mm. you know, this person's called into ministry. Mm. Um, I just need to identify it and I can see it in kids uh, I had one kid come and say to me many years ago, about 25 years ago, I was a young pastor still, but he told his parents, mom and dad, when I grow up, I want to be like Pastor Oscar. Hmm. He's a pastor today. Hmm. Even that age, he was only about seven or eight, um, even at that age, something was birthed 
that had nothing to do with me except he saw me from a distance mm. and he has become that now mm. okay and i had little to play in that except that i was accessible to him mm. um and i have seen others do that i never take it for granted if a child says that in the sunday school mm. i want to feed that stream mm. you know and mm. who knows where it will go but my job is not to call people mm. my job is to identify those who are called mm. Mm. my sense is uh I'll make a general statement again, and I can be corrected. It's not part of our radar as leaders in North America. We're not thinking that way. Mm. We're not even aware. So, yeah, so we're not even having those conversations. Yeah. We're not tapping anybody because we're not thinking that way. Here's an interesting thing, though. Um, many with some of our pastors, this was like maybe 15 years ago. We're sitting mm. around the table once. And I simply asked the question. I wasn't even the lead pastor, but we were having a great chat. And I said, how many of you had someone come alongside you? in your life and every person around the table yeah every person said oh well this person actually when i was 15 they walked with me in for two years and everybody could point to a person or the person mm -hmm. who in essence tapped them on the shoulder walk with them built into them but then here's the kicker so i asked everybody around the table so who are you walking with <laughs> it was silent oscar mm. have we lost the desire or passion or belief that we need, as much as we have the do larger work with teams and whatever else, have we lost the passion or desire to, for the individual and to have the conversation with that person? Uh, I think it's a North America. I'm not sure if you're seeing that mm. as a trend at all in Kenya, but boy, mm. that was interesting. You know, I'd say one thing about that, um, Matt. Rarely in scripture do you see anybody called into ministry directly. Mm. It was almost only somebody tapped them on the shoulder. Mm. God uses this generation to call the next mm. generation. So it's an Elijah mm. with an Elisha. Mm. It's a Paul with a Timothy. Now there are some people who have a direct encounter with God and they they know that this is what has, God has called them to. Yep, Moses yep. being an example of yep. that and the burning bush. But the majority of people in scripture mm. were called through an agent, mm. which was a spiritual leader who spoke into their lives. Mm. It would be sad if we, as the spiritual leaders today, mm. lost that mm. um, connection and weren't in the business of keeping on asking, Lord, who are, who are you calling? Who should I be tapping on the shoulder? Because mm. it's not about me. Mm. God is already at work in that person's life. Mm. I'm just playing a small role. Um, but it would be sad if we lost that. Mm -hmm. So you had four points, I think, on yeah, this yeah. leadership. So <laughs> let me go on to the second. Yeah, I love this. Okay. Great, thanks. Um, the second one would be um, the the understanding and recognition, having defined a leadership pipeline system. Okay, so there's a process, there's a path people mm -hmm. can, there's a door people can walk through. Okay, and the church isn't this mystical organization that has no doors which is what a lot of churches are nobody knows where to enter through um into ministry but there's a there's a door i can walk through the most important thing you can do in a person's life is then to invest in their character mm. more than anything else because i kid you not matt the best bylaws and constitutions and orders and codes of conduct count for nothing you cannot secure where this church will be 50 years from today. You won't be there. Mm. You cannot secure the future of this church, except and only if you can invest into the quality and character of the leaders who follow after you. Mm. 
And so the most important input into a person's life. The theological training is important, and I've had the privilege of going to theological school, very important, but it doesn't hold a match to character development. Unfortunately, many theological institutions are not about character development. They're about, you know, depositing theology into your head, um, and they don't really do much for character. And you cannot secure the future of the church unless you invest in character. And so you have to make it high premium, having identified the young men and women who God might be calling into the leadership pipeline, invest the best ever into their, you know, development in terms of character and in terms of, you know, their, 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 their beliefs, who they are, what they stand for, um, how they respond to the challenges of ministry. That's the best investment. How do you develop into someone's character? Like, is it just more you're with them all the time, you're seeing, you can course crack, like make them memorize all the right scriptures? Like, how, <laughs> right? It's 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 a it's a nuanced thing, isn't it? It's not a simple thing to. Yeah. It's so. What do you guys? What are you practically kind of looking for doing? So you can kind of see, because boy, as scripture says, the heart is wicked. Yeah. And I can hide from you things, maybe yeah. only for so long, but yeah, yeah talked about that. I, th- I think the best investment is always mentor and disciple a person for about three years, where you walk with them, you're present with them, you're meeting regularly with them, you're speaking into their life, you're opening up scripture for them, and there's very high contact hmm. with that person which means you can't do 50 people. Hmm. You're only going to do two or three. Hmm. Um, but but it's to disciple intentionally and to mentor a person that develops character. Hmm. And, and you know, Jesus had his 12, and he had yeah. the three years with them, yeah. and there was still Judas. You know, he, he still <laughs> yes. went out and did what he did, yeah. and the three years didn't seem to make a difference mm. in Judas's life. So it's it's not a sure, safe, you know, method mm. where everybody comes out. It's not a cookie-cutter factory, yeah, 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 yeah. okay? But more than anything, uh, for the other 11, you know, the Sanhedrin looked at them and said, you know, they could see that these men had been with Jesus. Mm. That's mm. what character development mm. is about. I think there's two things you talk about there. One is time. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking about three years. It's, this is not like come to a seminar on character. No. Mm. Um, and second, it's presence. You're yeah. with them. Yeah. So you're, you're not, and you're not just doing a study. Hey, come with me over here. Hey, let's go mm. do this together. Mm. You see someone. I had someone once tell me, you know someone's character when you ask them to drive you somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, and, and you see how they respond in a car and people cut them off. So. Yeah. And and uh, this this was also said by Fred Smith. Okay. He used to be okay. a big feature in leadership uh, circles, yeah. Christian leadership circles in the leadership journal of the early 90s. And he would say that, you know, the way he tested who the leaders were and what sort of leaders they were, Mm. you get them to drive when they went out together. And then you can see it. You know, do they take risks on the road? Mm. You know how you come up to a junction and you have to look left, look right, see whether there's any car. Well, there are people who, uh, you know, approach a junction too fast, come out, can get into an accident. And, you know, this guy takes risks and isn't really thinking about what he's doing. Alternatively, there are those you can see from a distance of, they are looking left and right, and they do know what's happening at the junction, mm. if there's another car and etc. And you can see they've looked at their options before they get to the place where they need to make a decision. And that's a leadership quality. Mm. And so I, I think it's a great thing. <laughs> 
All right, so number two was character. What's number yeah. three on that list? Number three is to define a system where you give care hmm. to the leaders that you have raised up. Ah. Okay? A couple of things there. Um, spiritual integrity. Hmm. At the end of the day, we are who we are because of the time we spend with Christ. But whoever asks a pastor, how are you doing in your devotional life, in your journaling, in your quiet time, in your scripture memory, and in your prayer life? Everybody just assumes that they're doing fine. Mm-hmm. That's why they are the pastor. You know, it's almost like he's a doctor. He's been to medical school. He knows these things. I don't need to question him. Well, not so with spiritual things. And uh, we could have done well in the past and not doing well now. But nobody remembers to ask. Mm. And so you can find that a man is, is serving with excellence in terms of their public ministry. But there is no private. In the back room, they never sit down at the table and, and, and bow their head before God. Mm. They're just too busy. They never take time to feed their souls. And they have become a husk that looks nice on the outside, but is, is empty on the inside. Mm. And they will collapse. It's just a matter of time. And so what care systems do you have for the spiritual care of your leaders? Okay, to keep them going the distance. Mm. That's one. Number two, what systems do you have for the moral integrity of your leaders? And there are three places where pastors fall like kingpins, you know, all over the place. One is in terms of their sexual purity and, you know, um, making sure that they are morally pure um, sexually, okay? Many pastors are fallen by the wayside there. But whoever asks, you know, what are you struggling with in terms of lust? What are you struggling with in terms of purity? You know, which men or women in your life are you dreaming about at night in the privacy of your dreams? You know, who do you look at and you can feel your head rush with blood? You know, and nobody ever asked these questions of, you know, key leaders. And so they are left to themselves. Second area that they struggle with is power, the use of power. And the pulpit and the pastorate is a powerful position. I, re- I remember once at somewhere around the age of 35 years, the thought crossed my mind one day, if I set out to do this, I could sleep with any woman on my staff team if I targeted them. They would not be able to, you know, to ward off my, my targeting. And I thought to myself, it is a wicked and powerful thing to be a leader with this sort of power. And God helped me that I would never do this. But I realized I could do it. Now, whoever asks me questions about, you know, the way you dealt with that guy, um, was that the way power should be used? You told them off? You threatened them? Um, is that the right use of power? Nobody asks those questions. You're the pastor. They just know you're a man of God and you're doing the right thing. And they're not there to see, okay? And then the third one is uh, money and privileges, especially privileges. I may not be taken from the till, but I assign privileges to myself um, that others may look at and say, you know, something's wrong. The car he drives nowadays, um, the shoes he wears, you know, the designer clothes he has. And this has been a problem if you look at the history of the modern church in the last 10 years of pastors who became celebrities. 
they assigned privileges and positions and titles to themselves that eventually destroyed them. Nobody ever asked these questions. And so what systems do we have around our leaders that secure their moral integrity? You know, this is what it means to take care. One of the fears that pastors in my context have is, will I be able, because the church doesn't always, you know, frequently doesn't have enough even to care for the pastor financially and to pay their rents and such. What do we need to do to ensure that a pastor has a place to live, has food on the table, can educate his children or her children, and has a retirement at the end of it all? Will our pastors retire into destitute poverty because their time is up and they have no income now? Or will they, having served the church and served faithfully for 50 years, retire into, you know, a future that allows that they can rest well and we can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Mm. Who's asking those questions? Mm. These, this is what it means then to, you know, to develop systems of care. Mm. Uh, when our pastors burn out, what happens to them? Do we ditch them and let them go? We say he can't do any job now, so, and it takes seven years to recover from burnout. How do you care for a pastor who burnt out because of the way they gave themselves to ministry and they have a seven-year recovery path? How do you even get them not to get there? Mm. And you ensure that they're living a balanced life and that mm. they're not overextending themselves using tomorrow's energy today. Mm. How do you do that? So trying to put that in place. And it's, it's something I'm wrestling with. Remember in the first podcast I said, I developed a culture of work at mm. Chapel mm. that was go, 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 go. Mm. and there are no stops now it's come back to bite me because mm. i'm seeing my pastors burning out and this cannot be our future mm. charles the third yeah cares or was there one more on this whole yes. leadership yes. piece yeah yes. what was that final I the fourth this. is how do we um uh put into place structures that allow for succession mm. from one leader to the next mm. well so that the effort and the work i put into the future of this church doesn't all come collapsing down because the wrong leader was appointed who wasn't ready, who couldn't do this. And everything I built over 20 years of ministry came crashing down in two years with the successor. Mm. What are the systems to, you know, um, take a young leader, mm. bring them up to speed, run with them, and pass the baton with them. And I say that, you know, if you've ever watched a relay, Kenyans are supposed to be good at running, okay? <laughs> Win a lot of marathons. But, you know, if you've ever watched a relay, there's several things you can do to pass on the baton when it comes to a relay. Number one, the right way you're supposed to do it is run up to the person who's going to take the baton from you. They start running and you catch up with them and you put the baton in their hand and they start picking up speed and you let go of the baton and you slow down. And they keep running. So by the time the baton is passed on from one runner to the next, they're running at your top speed and they're going to run faster because they have energy and they've just come into the race. That's the right way to do it. A lot of leaders get to the next person and they chuck the baton to them. And he has to catch it and run. And he's going to drop it. Okay, because nobody trained him. He doesn't know how to do this. There wasn't a good passing on. And, you know, the church suffers for that. There are other leaders who get to the next runner and they put the baton in their hand, but they won't let go. 
And so they're still holding on and, you know, even though they're not the lead pastor anymore, they make these comments, it's terrible, you know, he's not a good leader and etc. And they're holding on to the baton as though they want to continue running, but they don't have the energy to run and the next guy wants to run and he has to run faster, but he doesn't have control of the baton. That's terrible succession. Okay, there are all these ways that you can engineer succession in a way that just ensures that the mm. church will not thrive. So how do we do it in a way where from one generation to the next, there is good succession and the mm. church moves to the next level mm. because the succession was well done and because the leaders were well prepared mm. for the succession. And I guess in your context as a bishop overseeing 80 churches, you know, you're working on your own succession. Actually, you handed off five years ago yeah. for the main site, but now you're, I guess you're in part of your, this secure the leadership of the church. How do you build this culture of succession with all your pastors? And, mm. and what you've outlined here is a beautiful way to kind of see that. Um, I'm not sure if you're already seeing some of the churches you planted. Are they already handing it over to a new leader? Is that already taking place? Not yet. Been learned? Not okay. yet because okay. all the leaders were younger than I. But, you know, when it comes to succession, here's the thought. Eh? Oftentimes, the visionary leader um, needs somebody who is a good manager following them. Yeah. Because the work of a leader is to disrupt the, you know, the weak, or rather the, the waters. Yeah. And they're the ones who cut through the waters into new territory, taking people where they've never been, and etc. The manager, the executive pastor or the assistant pastor comes behind them and brings order in light of the wake that they're creating, mm. the waves that they're creating behind them. And so they get the budgets running properly. They make sure that, you know, everybody's doing their job and they're good managers. The problem comes when the leader leaves and the manager is promoted to be the new leader. Hmm. And then you end up getting an underled church hmm. that is overmanaged. Hmm. Because that's their style and that's who they are. So in five years, they'll order the church beautifully, but it's not going anywhere. There's not a clear vision hmm. and they are not risk takers and they're not going to go and disrupt the systems. They're making sure there are no disruptions. But oftentimes when there are no disruptions, there is no risk being taken. And when there's no risk, there is no new territory being conquered and etc. And so you have an overmanaged church that is underled, and uh, And then the church is in trouble. Mm. And within 10 years, the church sort of you know, just fell apart mm. because nobody was going anywhere. Now, it becomes important that the second most important position in the organization needs to be a budding leader who is a risk taker mm. and the future of leadership in the church. Mm. The third position that should never ever come to the first position needs to be the manager. Mm. Okay. Now, part of my challenge is in securing the leadership is to say to all our leaders, I need you to have at least the next leader in some sort of training process mm. that is seven years out, okay? And if we get to the place where this leader is ready to take over and you're not yet in the place where, you know, you need to, to, to pass on the baton, then they can go and plant a new church mm. and you take on the next guy and have seven years to train them. But the, the, the manager is a long-term position mm. that we you know set into place but they're not heading towards mm. becoming the lead pastor boy that's a whole other conversation we're not going to go there <laughs> but i guess as part of securing, securing the leadership you want to ensure that leaders are being promoted to the number one position let's call it um versus a manager wow yeah. that's a that's a controversial possibly conversation <laughs> 
but it's knowing people's giftings and and a person saying guys i'm a manager not a leader yeah don't put me up there i'll structure things well but yeah and how do you find that way to do that well? here's, here's so. the other thing that tends to happen in a lot of churches you take the lead shepherd and make them the lead church pastor mm. well a shepherd is not a risk taker a shepherd you know, cares for people, mm-hmm. calms them down, suits them when they're hurting, and etc., mm-hmm. etc. And so, people love the shepherd because <laughs> he was there in my brokenness. Mm-hmm. But he's not a risk taker. He's mm-hmm. not, you know, going to disrupt systems because that hurts people, and therefore he'll never lead you anywhere except into greater shepherding. Mm-hmm. And that's not what the church needs. It needs that, mm-hmm. but not in that position. A leader mm-hmm. is a leader is a leader, and it's a gift that God has given. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a disruptive gift. <laughs> Oscar, thank you for this. That was uh, number two, Secure the Leadership of the Church. Hey, hope you can join us on the other podcast. We're going to walk these eight pieces with Oscar Moreo of Nairobi Chapel. Oscar, so grateful for you. Look forward to the rest of these podcasts.